everybody and welcome back to the Hand Me Up podcast. A podcast where two Zimbabwean women, Rue and Gwen, in the academic space share their journey toward attaining a PhD. In this episode, we are joined by Mandy, a Zimbabwean woman based in Zimbabwe, sharing her own story of distance learning and undertaking a PhD in the area of menstrual health and hygiene and adolescent sexual health at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. Welcome to the podcast, Mandy. Really, really excited to have you here. Thank you for having me. Very excited to be here. Fantastic, fantastic. Just to get us started, um, we just always try and do a little three-minute spiel at the beginning to introduce yourself. So if you can just tell us quickly in about three minutes who you are, uh, what you are about, what you're doing, and anything that you may think is of interest to our audience as well. Okay, awesome. So uh, like you said, my name is Mandy. I am a PhD research fellow with LSHTM based in Zimbabwe. So in Zimbabwe, I work with the Biomedical Research and Training Institute. I am now in the last year of my PhD, and the focus of my work is sexual reproductive health, but specifically looking at menstrual health outcomes amongst young women aged 16 to 24 across Zimbabwe. Uh, so the past two years, I've been working with an amazing team um, when we've been conducting a cluster randomized trial across Zimbabwe, where we offer free sexual reproductive health services to young people aged 16 to 24. And part of those services are menstrual health. And I'm looking specifically at how um, the intervention affects a change in knowledge, practices and perceptions around menstruation, but also looking at uh, product choice and looking at pain management amongst women in Zimbabwe. Um, yeah, very, I, I guess I would call myself a a feminist um, and someone who definitely from a very young age has always advocated for women's health and for women's rights. Um, yeah, and that's that's a bit of me, I guess. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, yeah, I hadn't realized you're in your final year, so I'm really excited for you. Really, really excited. And also your PhD area for me um, is just really interesting um, on a personal level because I've, I mean, maybe it might be sharing too much, but uh, I was diagnosed with endometriosis at some point. Um, now I can speak about it in past tense because I was one of those people who managed to actually get help. And I remember yeah. suffering with dysmenorrhea in high school. Fun fact, audience, Mandy and I went to the same high school again. Yes. Another Arundel girl <laughs> in the house. <laughs> and I was one of those girls when, um, yeah, during my cycle, I would always be decap... Decap... Well, that word always just makes me struggle saying it. Anyway, I would always be out of the game, let's put it that way. Yeah. And in Sydney Bay yeah. the whole time. And I was one of those girls who'd have to sometimes get morphine injections and everything. So wow. it's just really exciting knowing that, you know, there are people out there who are looking out for us Zim women in particular and exploring this research area. Yeah. yeah so um, without talking too, too much, Rue, um, back to you, Mandy, <laughs> as well. Um, if you could please just detail a little bit about your journey before the PhD. So perhaps if you can share with us what you studied prior to your PhD and how you arrived at this area of study. Yeah, so um, I went to undergrad in America and had every intention of going into pre-med and becoming a doctor, again, because I have always loved, you know, engaging in women's health and women's health issues. So I thought a doctor would be the way to go. Um, and if you're, I don't know how many people are familiar with the American system, but I went to a liberal arts college. So when you go there, you don't declare what you want to do. Your first year is really for you to explore and see what you like. 
Um, I did a lot of, I guess, what you would call pre-med courses, so your chemistry and biology and math. But then I also took a women gender studies class um, and then later on took a um, like a women's health class mm-hmm. and then one that looked at feminism and the history of feminism. And I think those three classes opened my eyes to the idea of community-based um, intervention and advocacy. Um, I mean, already lit the fire of like, I'm a woman, hear me roar. But beyond that, uh, I think uh, the community-based classes really let me know that I didn't want to just like have an encounter with a patient once off and then have them go away. An ideal situation would be for me to like live in communities and help them over time. Um, so I quickly transitioned from what I from pre-med, which is what I wanted to do, and went into public health. So luckily for me, public health was something I was able to study as an undergrad um, qualification. Um, and in my final year, I had a really interesting project where I was working with an Amish community because uh, we had a lot of Amish people in our in our area where I went to school. And I was able to do a project where I interviewed Amish families about a, a congenital condition that a lot of children in that community have. And we wrote a book about how to take care of your child if they have this condition. And I really, really loved that. I loved getting information from communities and then being able to come back to them and say, remember when we interviewed you a few weeks ago? This is what we have for you now. Um, And so after my undergrad, I applied for a master's program in the UK. So I went to UCL, University College London, and I did a master's in global health and development. And uh, after that, I took up a summer project in South Africa where I was a study coordinator for an STI study um, in Kailicha. Um, And again, it was looking very much at health outcomes, um, reproductive health outcomes amongst young people. And I really, really enjoyed that work because it was engaging with young people, it was talking about sex, it was talking about STIs and in a very innovative way, not like don't have sex, but how can we make sex fun and safe? Um, and then I came back home and I really was just like, I don't know what I'm going to do now. Um, and had coffee with another Arundel alumni and told her about my work. And she said, Hey, send me your CV. I feel like there's someone you should talk to. And so, I mean, just to say, if you know people, definitely make connections, like go for coffee with people, send an email because those things really, really, really do work. Um, and I sent her my CV. I went to a meeting about Chiedza before it started. So Chiedza is the study that I've been working on for the past two and a half years. And because I've worked on something similar in South Africa, I had a lot of things to say. You know, I had a lot of opinions based on past experience. Um, and the sort of principal investigator was just like, hey, are you interested in a PhD? And I was like, no, that's, <laughs> that's not really what I was looking for right now. Because uh, um, it was really daunting, right? Like, mm. uh, I think a PhD can be very intimidating. And I, and I knew I wanted to do one at some stage. I just didn't think that the opportunity would present itself so early, early for me. Mm. Um, and yeah, so then I applied and I, I got the placement and I acquired funding And at the same time, I'd gotten an offer to do sort of like a scholarship program in America. Um, And I remember being at a crossroads of like, what do I do? And my, I remember having this conversation with my dad and he said, you know, never ever in your life is someone going to pay you to go to school and study what you love. Like, 
you can go to America at any time, but this to do this and get this qualification and enjoy what you're doing and get paid for it. You can't say no to that. Mm. And I remember that conversation and I'm so grateful that I had that conversation with him and, uh, yeah, that's how I'm here today. Wow. Listening to your story is just so inspiring. And um, I hadn't realized you had this wealth of knowledge behind you. I mean, I knew you had studied in different places, but also just taking away from, you know, um, your interaction with different social groups. So, you know, the Amish group, as you mentioned, you were there in South Africa and Kailisha. There's a whole different group, you know, the contrast, the overlaps, going to Zimbabwe, having lived in the UK. That's a wealth of knowledge that, you know, has probably informed a lot of your understanding in your um, PhD topic as well. And I really love the fact that, you know, you talk about, you know, this idea of experience, um, first-hand experience informing what we do and making connections. Um, Guys, if you're listening, I think you've heard us talk about connections, networking, um, reaching out to people. It is so, so important. It goes such a long way. Close mouths, don't get fed, certainly. And wherever you are, whatever work experience you're doing, be it an internship or a placement, take it seriously because you never know that might be the item that will be opening up the next door for you. And I think Mandy's story is just a perfect example of that. And I think the last thing that I might want to touch on is um, the conversation you had with your dad, which is really, really powerful. Um, And that made me think of the conversation I had with my dad too, because um, I remember I was also of the same mindset as you thinking PhD now, (laughs) are you people, you know, you know, and I remember my dad saying something similar, you know, you've got a scholarship are you married was his next statement do you have children do you have commitments <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. What are, so what's stopping you go now you know are, are you going to get another opportunity where someone pays you to do what you like no yeah go and do it <laughs> yeah know. exactly mm-hmm. so i just yeah i think for me that speaks to um the idea of our family supporting us as well and just dads behind the girls because oftentimes we hear stories you know mum supported me mum pushed me in that way not to say your mum didn't do that no yeah but but it is like that sort of like male figure also Mm. pushing you and I think I mean there are two things right so the one is being able to have these kind of conversations with people who are older and Mm. more experienced and can give some wisdom and guidance is so important Sometimes it might not be your parents. It might be someone you worked with, like, a you know, someone who was your, your boss or now a mentor. I think that's incredibly important to have that sort of older person who can give some guidance. Mm. But also around the networking thing, like, I am someone who's an introvert. I can, I can act extroverted if need be. And I always used to think of networking as something that's like, okay, like, if you're good with people, then you're good with people. But you literally have to consider it as part of your job, like think of it as this is what I need to do to get to climb the ladder in whatever industry I'm in and not just be like, Oh, I'm a quiet person. So that's not for me. No, you have to acquire the skills and make sure that you're making, having the important conversations with people that could really, really help you in your research or in your career. Certainly. And I think that's really, really important. Um, I think for a person like me, who's probably opposite to you, I'm very chatty. Um, and I talk a lot, (laughs) but it's also, it's equally nerving, you know, in, in the sense that, um, going to conferences or speaking to people, approaching people can actually just cause a lot of anxiety, but one has to learn at the end of the day that that is part of the job. That is part of the terrain. You have to just find your own groove. We're not all the Uh same. So we've got different ways of approaching it, but find your own groove 
and connect with people, um, have those difficult yeah. conversations. And I think you talk about, you know, the idea of a mentor. That's really, really important. There are two things I do want to segue into that I want to ask you about. Um, so the idea of a mentor, and then I think second part is uh, the funding around your uh, PhD scholarship as well. Uh-huh. But if we start off with the idea of a mentor, um, was it the Arundel girl that you had a coffee with that's your, that you consider your primary mentor? Or have you picked up other individuals along the journey who perhaps, you know, are those people that you go to when you want guidance or input into what you're doing? Yeah. So I think my, my mentors are people that have taught me like in school. So uh, one of my mentors is someone from, is a professor from undergrad Mm -hmm. um, who actually introduced me and was really passionate about me continuing with the women gender studies program. And that ended up being a minor for my degree because I just really loved it. Um, And she was just so supportive over time. So she is my mentor. And then, you know, I, I don't know the structure of PhDs across the globe, but um, in the UK, I think you have an advisory team. Mm. So you have a primary supervisor and maybe two other supervisors under that. Um, and it's not always that you're paired with people that you actually get along with and get on with. But I have been fortunate enough to have supervisors that I really connect with. Uh, professionally but also personally and so I would say that though they are my mentors I I want to do what they are doing now to some degree um and I also feel you know there are people that I've met and stayed in touch with along the way that I wouldn't necessarily call mentors but definitely advisors when Mm I you know when I need to think through a decision or um, about a program or something like that that I will email or call. Um, and so they're not someone that I maybe regularly meet with, but definitely people that I've connected with and feel like, Hey, can you tell me a little bit more? Do you think this is a good idea? Um, and I feel like I've identified, you know, predominantly with other, um, African women who are in academia, um, that I've connected with and really just sort of uh, resonated with and said, you know, particularly around this case, what do you think about this? Um, because they have an understanding of what it is to be a, a black woman in academia. And I, and I completely, I'm drawn to that. Mm. Um, yeah. And appreciate that. Yeah. I think that's really, really good. Um, this idea of representation is really important. And I think this is pr- one of the main reasons we also started this platform because when I did my PhD, I didn't have that. And mm. in as much as we can have mentors of different, you know, backgrounds, et cetera, sometimes you want to hear the story from someone who's similar to you, who looks mm-hmm. like you, who's, who yeah. understands your journey. Not to say, um, you know, other ethnicities may not understand it, but there's a level of relate- relatability. Oh, my goodness. You know, it's been a long <laughs> day today. I am losing all my words. Um, just that idea of being able yeah. to relate to someone's story and being able to connect to them. But I also yeah. think, you know, the idea of having a really good mentorship team, so your supervisors. And I think with all the ladies we've spoken to on this podcast, I everybody's had a really good team. We are all fortunate That's and blessed. That's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because it can go really wrong. Mm, it, it can really certainly can. go wrong. I've had, I've got yeah. a few friends who've had, um, yeah, some really bad relationships. One of my friends actually dropped out of the PhD journey because of the relationship mm. she had with her supervisor who yeah. would basically copy all her work and publish papers and not credit her. Oh. So, um, you know, these things do yeah. go awry in some areas, but it's good to have that relationship. And when you identify it, foster it. I mean, yeah. I finished my PhD 2018 and I'm still in contact with my team. I think I was even talking to my um, primary supervisor the other day. We're working on 
another paper together awesome. and even yeah. like as you know i approach jobs etc she's always the person that i put as a primary reference yeah. so it's really really important and even whenever i'm thinking of anything i actually always go back to her and say what do you think you know yes because they've walked this journey they've been there yeah. before they've experienced the stuff so why not ask them yeah yeah yeah. So, um, yeah, moving into the other part that I wanted to ask was the funding element as well, because you did mention that you, um, have got a, a scholarship or funding of yeah. sorts. Yeah. Um, do you care to take us through that journey, how that came about as well? Yeah. So, um, so once I got the PhD, um, there was an opportunity to apply for the Fogarty fellowship. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you can look it up. It's with, um, NIH, um, and it basically, uh, covers your, stipend, your research costs, your institutional costs, your travel, if you need to travel to school at least once or twice a year. Um, And they're also very much invested in development, right? So if you say, I would like to go to a training at Oxford and I need accommodation and a plane ticket, and this is how much it costs, they will absolutely accommodate that. And so that has been such a uh, I guess a, a relief because it's not something I have to worry about. Um, and it's, it's essentially, you're just telling them why your research is important and why, how you will be able to implement it. Mm. Um, and you can find the application easily online. Mm. So I got that and that was really helpful. But another thing that I would say, uh, which again speaks to this whole networking aspect, I think when I started you know, applying for this PhD around menstrual health, it was just when menstrual health was picking up a lot of steam mm. and becoming a big topic in the research industry. Um, and I spoke about it at every single opportunity. So every talk um, that I went to, every sort of research event that was happening locally, um, even I have friends that worked at Population Services International so PSI or FHI 360 and, or maybe an embassy event. And I would talk about the research I'm doing. And I ended up speaking to someone from the Swiss embassy. And so the Swiss development cooperation, which is part of the Swiss embassy was very much um, looking to engage in research that was for gender equity that aligned with the SDG goals. And so I told them about my work and they ended up giving us quite a bit of money that funded the whole menstrual health component of Chiedza as a study, not only Mm. my research, but the whole study over the past two years. And so that literally came from a conversation that happened over time Um, and just fostering that and giving them a proposal and having more conversations. And then that facilitated, you know, funding for a whole program that's helped numerous amount of women uh, across Zimbabwe, providing them with uh, menstrual products, but also allowing for my research to expand beyond just Harare. So I was like Mash East and Bulawayo as well. Wow. I mean, I think your story speaks to the power of networking um, and the power of putting yourself out there. Uh, There are many times that I tell people, go to conferences, go to conferences. You have no idea. Just being somewhere and speaking, somebody who's in the audience will hear you speak and that might get the ball rolling for so many different things. And in your case, this particular funding that's not only impacted your life, but the lives of many others and a whole entire yeah, project. Yeah, so many. Mm. Yeah, yeah, so many. It's it's been brilliant. It's mm. been really brilliant. And uh, you know, just like having that endorsement and being able to implement that research has allowed us to reach to other people. So um, the PI for Chieds as a whole was able to sort of show this is what we've done, but we could do so much more if you could help us. And so we, after that, we got a donation of a million pads from Johnson and Johnson, and they were like 
given what you guys have done, we know that you'll know what to do with these. So here you go. Mm. It's like, wow. Wow. That's fantastic. Yeah. And all yeah. these, um, you know, collaborations and partnerships, they will go a long way. Yeah. yeah. Um, as I was listening to you and you've been talking about this organization, Chiedza, I've been curious to just know a bit more about it. So if you don't mind, could you walk us through as the audience just a little bit? What is Chiedza about? What is the initiative? What's the goal, et cetera? Yeah. So Chiedza, so there's, we have a website actually. So mm. if you'd like to, the website is chiedza.co.zw. Um, and you can get sort of a clearer picture of what it's about. But in summary, it is a cluster randomized clinical trial across Zimbabwe. So we're in MASH East, Bulawayo, and Harare. We are in 12 clusters. So clusters are basically um, boundaried areas within Zimbabwe. So mm-hmm. a cluster could just be like um, Mabvuku. That mm-hmm. would be a cluster. And so we are doing this intervention just within Mabvuku. And what we want to find out is after two years, is there a difference on the places we were versus the places we were not? And like I said earlier, we are giving out a comprehensive package of uh, reproductive health services to both men and women aged 16 to 24. So family planning, STI testing and treatment, HIV testing and treatment, menstrual health specifically for women, uh, condoms, we're giving out condoms and counseling. Um, and then uh, before COVID, we wanted to make the environment very youth friendly. So we have games that people can play, we have music, we have TV, we have books that people can read. So it's not like you're just coming to get tested or coming to get condoms. It's a place where young people can hang out, um, interact, um, get information, but also seek health services. Mm. Sounds really, really good. Um, I'm really glad to hear about that. And also that it's not just targeted at women. It's also, you know, no. inclusive in the sense that, you know, other genders are included in there. And the sex education and the, um, you know, information you're sharing on menstrual health is not just, you know, targeted to one particular group. Because in society... No, yeah. yeah. Actually, when we do the sessions, like, the team is... So the actual... The implementation team is both men and women. Mm. Um, and they are like the male youth workers or the male community workers that do the menstrual health teaching are just brilliant. They're Mm. so good at it. They talk about everything to do with menstrual health. They talk about how to use the cup, how to use reusable pads. And then the sessions themselves are both uh, young men and women. Mm. Um, And it's been really interesting to watch that because the men are so engaged. Like they want to know about menstrual health. Um, And I guess the girls are a little bit more shy um, maybe because, you know, there's all, always that sort of thing, like, we don't talk about this. Yeah, there's a stigma in society about, you know, yeah. it's your little dirty secret. I think it helps for them to see the boys be so enthusiastic about learning. Not mm. teasing, not making fun, but genuinely trying to understand how this thing works and how it affects women. Um, and by the end of it, the girls are a little bit more comfortable and ask questions. And it's just, it's a great um, sort of visual to see how over time, if you if you encourage and support menstrual health education and engagement, things can change. Yeah. And I think that's important, especially in our society, because for example, um, uh, for me, my dad was really open with it, but that was pushed because my mom had passed away. So there was a period of time where it was just me and my dad and my brother. And so we had to have these conversations. And, you know, I remember the one time a Kotex, Kotex advert came on TV and my dad just used that as a way to introduce the topic and just say to my brother at the time, do you know what that is? You know, okay, so I'm going to oh, sit you down. Like yeah, and talked about it. I mean, I know it's not it's not common, but he realized we had to do this. And he knew that, you know, I had um, 
uh, at that time it was still just dysmenorrhea. And he wanted my brother to just know what to do in case, you know, I would pass out a lot um, because of the mm. dysmenorrhea. Wow. And um, I remember in high school, my dad would often buy my pads. There was a time even in Fife Avenue, uh, at Fife Avenue, Strathavon's, I oh know, Fife Avenue or Strathaven, whichever, some spa. Um, I'd forgotten to buy my pads. My dad went back to the aisle, brought them to the till, and even the till operator was looking at him like, you know, what, those are lady things. My dad's like, that's my daughter. And yeah. he would often come to Arundel because I was a boarder and bring me yeah. you know, my sanitary pads and things like that. He wasn't that's scared. Awesome. Yeah. And I even remember because I used to pass out quite a bit. Um, the one time I was in TM supermarket where I grew up in Cherezi and I passed out and my, I wasn't my brother. Yeah. And my brother knew what to do. He was 14 at the time. But he knew what to do, you know, and went to the store manager, explained, this is what's happening. Can you call an ambulance? My sister's not feeling well, blah, blah, blah. And I think, you know, there was a lot of value in that because my dad had spoken to my brother about it. He wasn't, you know, scared of it. It wasn't a uh-huh. subject that was, you know, out of the blue, which meant I was able to access a gynecologist really early on, age 16, uh-huh. you know, and then start um, finding out what was wrong. That's how yeah. you know, I managed to get access to specialists really early on. Etc. And, and that's so rare, right? Because mm. most times you're told this is just what happens. This is just what it is. Yeah, I went, you know, for for um, scans, all sorts. My dad pushed it, pushed it, pushed it, and made sure, you know, I went out there. And then by the time my dad remarried, um, my um, stepmom's best friend is a doctor, so she mm. then decided let's push this agenda. And by the time I went to study in Switzerland, she did some research on my behalf and found out who the best gynecologist was there which gave me access yeah. and that's how my issue was resolved. But I think it wow. started with my dad just being very open at the beginning and not having yeah. any stigma around, like I was put on the menstrual pill, um, I think age 15, 16, just to try and control hormonal balances. And yeah. I remember um, the relatives were like, oh, why are you putting her on the pill at that age? That she's going to be sexually promiscuous, yes. you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and these conversations are, are important. And, and the irony is I actually didn't get active until much, much later in my life, but yeah. my dad was confident enough for me to get on the pill because he understood that at the end of the day, we need to help Rotendo find a way forward. And he, yeah. you know, he wasn't he wasn't shy about talking about these things. But anyway, I could go on forever, so just got to put it out there. <laughs> I love that story, though. That's great. Yeah. Um. So, gosh, there's so many interesting bits in your story and um your journey. I think mostly because it just resonates. Um, yeah. But I think maybe I'd like to ask uh, more of the discipline-specific questions. So, for example, you know, what faculty does your research topic sit in? And also, I think you talked a bit about, you know, your data collection. So if you could walk us through perhaps um, some of the approaches that you've gone about, some of the stories around your PhD and what you've found, what you've explored, etc. Yeah. Um, so originally, the we did not have a research question, right? So what mm. we did know is that um, in order to address the reproductive health needs of young women in Zimbabwe, we need to include a menstrual health component. We went, so before we were sort of forming what the study would look like, we had uh, workshops with young women and young men, and they were very like participatory. So we're just trying to engage with them, um, get information from them because they know more than anyone else what they need. Um, And so we had, uh, we asked them like, If there was this perfect service where you could get anything for free to do with your health, what would you get? And overwhelmingly, all the women said, we need, we need pads. They didn't actually Mm. say we need menstrual health. They were like, we need pads and we need education about periods. Um, So it was really clear that if we're, if we're going to try and get women to come to our service, we need to include menstrual health. And then it became what, what, 
what does the menstrual health intervention look like? Um, and I think overwhelmingly people want disposable pads. That's what we're used mm. to. It's easy to use. Um, but because of the huge need in Zimbabwe, we didn't want to become like a like a dispenser for the community, right? We are working specifically with this age group. We don't want people to come and get pads and then sell them to other people in the community mm-hmm. or give them to their mom or give them to their cousin who lives far away because there's such a need. So uh, we stuck with reusable for sustainability, um, but also for accountability. So if you are coming to our service and you are taking a reusable product, you are the only person that's going to use that product. Um, and also, once we leave, you'll still be able to use that product. Mm-hmm. So we thought a lot around the sustainability of the project and also what's needed. Another thing that I think people don't really think about or talk about when it comes to menstrual health is pain. So you are so familiar with that. But when people talk about it in terms of research or keeping girls in school, it's very product-based. But a lot of women were like, beyond the product, like actually cloth is not that bad, but I have no way to manage the pain I go through. Mm. I don't have medication. Um, I don't know how to manage it beyond just like sleeping at home. So we made sure that we included a pain management aspect. So educating on what is deemed normal versus abnormal, um, and then also ways to manage it in terms of medication, but also exercise or heating pads. So we provided that information and we also provided pain medication. And then in terms of the research, I guess, methods that we're using, we wanted to sort of see when you give people information, and you give them a choice of products because I think a lot of studies have been like, oh, cups are menstrual cups are acceptable. But it's if you're only giving out cups, of course someone's gonna take them if they're mm. free. They're gonna take them. Whether they're using them or not, we don't know, but they're going to take them because they're free. So we wanted to look at if you give a choice, what do they take? And then do they continue to use that over time? So with our study, you can take a product at day zero. And then we encourage you to use it for at least three cycles. So that's three months about. Um, only because it's, it takes a bit of time to get, some, to get used to something new. If after those three months you still don't like what you're using, you can change it. So then we're able to assess if you pick reusable pads, do you continue with them? Does it work for you? If not, why not? Um, if you pick the cup, does that work for you? Do you change it or not? So we wanted to see patterns of use and use over time. And we are looking at that using a biometric system. So when you come to Chiedza, you just put a fingerprint on so that they know you've come in. Mm-hmm. And everything you take up in that day, so whether you're getting STI testing, whether you're taking up a menstrual cup, everything is recorded. So we have real-time data of what you're doing every time you come to Chiedza. We also gave them a period diary. Um, so this diary is allowed. So you log in, are you experiencing pain on this day? Are you taking pain medication? Yes or no. Um, are you going, did you miss school or work because of your period, that kind of stuff. So they were able to track over time, how does your period affect your work or school activity, which I think is quite important in terms of, um, how periods expect affect your everyday life. Mm. Um, and then the, Last thing we're looking at is with a smaller group of people, we've introduced period underwear. So we gave them all three products. So we're not asking them to choose. We gave them everything. 
And with that, we're saying, if you have access to all these products at home, what do you choose when and why? So on a heavy day, do you choose to couple two products together for extra safety? On a light day, do you use the underwear? We just want to understand how women make choices around what product they use. Um, and, and, and also to advocate for the idea that there's no one product that fits all. I think what we've seen is di the diversity is incredibly important because at one point in your life, you might choose one product depending on where you're living, depending on the type of job you do, depending on your flow, your flow, that's all incredibly important. So when we're talking about access to products, governments should give access to all types of products because they could function in different ways at different points in a woman's life. Mm. And I think that information is really important because there's a lot yeah. of stigmas around that because um, in high school, I was actually a tea swimmer. Um, I think form one, form three and primary school, I was, I was always a tea swimmer. But I remember when I started my period, I was 11 and my mom's older sister actually said, ah, you're giving one, uh, you're giving her tampons. Yes. <laughs> you know, do you realize that's going to break her hymen yeah. and things like this? And I remember it became a thing um, of, yeah. oh, you then, you know, when there were swimming meets around the time that I was on my period, I would actually not go swimming exactly. because there was a stigma of you can't use tampons. And then, so that meant I didn't get onto the tampon bandwagon until much later. And it affected my perception of tampons. And mm -hmm. so I stuck to using pads, not because I liked them. I really didn't actually like them when I started using them, but I got comfortable yeah. with that because that was the only option I was given. And also then later on, you know, when I then did start using tampons, I found them really uncomfortable because I associated them with this uh, myth. So I think what you're doing is really important in the sense that you're giving people options and then educating them yeah. around those particular options and empowering women in, letting them, in the sense that you let them know that it's their decision and um, they can choose what they want and what's comfortable for them as well. Yeah, mm. yeah. So, I mean, we're definitely... So, um, for the, the group that we've given all the products, we have been following up with them over the past year. Mm. Um, and at baseline, so at the beginning when they entered the study and after a year, we're sort of assessing with a questionnaire how their practices and perceptions have changed over time. So did having access to these products and having access to people you could talk to and communicate with at Chiedza about menstrual health and about the different products change how you felt about your period personally, right? So mm. maybe you're less anxious, um, maybe you're more confident talking about it, you're more confident within yourself around your time of your period, um, and then practices of... Now are you using the cup? Maybe for three months you didn't. And then after a couple of months, you're like, okay, my friend said it wasn't a bad experience, so I'm going to try it. Um, and we're seeing that after, after a period of time, a lot more girls are willing to try. Mm. But the biggest barrier is not how they feel about it. It's how everyone else in the home feels about it. It's how their mom feels about it or their boyfriend feels about it or their sister feels about it. And it's around exactly like perceptions around the hymen. Mm. Especially with the cup, there's so many girls who are so eager to try it because it's, you know, they felt like it would make things easier for them. But they'll go home and their mom's like, no, if you're not sexually active, then you shouldn't be using the cup. If you're using it, what you're telling me is that you're sexually active. And it's like, 
No. no. <laughs> so, so no, we so what happened? So we started including community members in the education sessions mm. um, because we realized it's just not it's not working to just work with the individual. You have to work with the community as well. So having them come to our information sessions and being able having them being able to ask all the questions that they want to ask has been really really helpful. Um, yeah, but it's all of that has just taught me that change takes time. Like we've been we've grown up thinking a certain way for 20, 30, 40, 50 years. Mm -hmm. You can't expect that to change overnight. Mm. And I guess what I've learned from the whole experience is that, you know, you you inform people and you have these educational uh, programs and exchanges, right, where we're able to feedback. You tell me how you feel. I'll tell you how I feel. At the end of the day, what we want is someone to make an informed choice. If after everything, if after all the knowledge sharing, you still feel the same way, then good, because now you've made an informed choice knowing everything that's out there, and that's okay. Mm, yeah, I think that's really, really important, and um, you guys are doing an important job, and I'm really enjoying this. <laughs> yeah, I have to just actually keep holding myself from just asking more personal <laughs> questions as you're talking. Yeah, so um, I think the next thing that I might want to also know is just um, the entry requirements needed for an international student on your particular type of PhD, you know, whether it's things such as, you know, the grades, do they need to be at a certain level, past qualification, uh, work experience or knowledge level, anything that you think is important if somebody was to try and follow in your um, shoes? Yeah, so with the PhD, I think the biggest thing is um, knowing exactly what you want to study. Right. So I think when the application came about, it was a lot more about what is it that you feel like you're going to bring in terms of new knowledge to this industry or to this sphere? And why do you think it's important? So if you come in with a sort of um, good idea, an idea that you've clearly done some research on to say that there's a gap in this knowledge base, and also you've done your research on the school and on the faculty and on the staff member that you want to mentor you, that's by far the most important thing. Mm -hmm. So you've thought through who is best um, placed to lead or to help me in this study. I've looked up their credentials. I've looked up their past experience. So I've, I, I'm going to reach out to this professor. And then why do you want to study it? Why is it important? I think those are critical. Mm. In terms of qualifications, I've, I didn't feel like um, the grades were necessarily um, as important as the qualifications. So if you have a master's, if you have an undergrad and a master's, that's what is important. Um, more so, I think, is what is your work experience? What are you bringing to the table? What skills, like, are you skilled enough to, to do this work that you're saying you're going to do? Um, and how can you show me that? It doesn't necessarily mean that you've got the best grade in your epi class, but what work experience have you done that you are bringing to this PhD? Um, the UK PhD, or at least with LSHTM, there's a lot of uh, room for you to develop yourself mm -hmm. in the PhD. So you can say, you know, I don't have a lot of qualitative skills, but I'm going to take this class and this class and this class, and I have this background that would lend to me um, understanding how to go about this practically. Um, yeah, so I, I think that if you have a, an understanding of what you want to study and why it's important, you've identified mentors or um, potential supervisors and you've reached out to them and gotten their support and input, 
and you're able to sort of show your work experience or study experience um, that would lend itself to you having the skills to be able to achieve what you're saying you want to do, um, then those are the things that they look at most critically. And another point to the whole networking front is, you know, those letters of support, Mm. having people you've worked with prior really vouch for you and say, this person is hardworking. What they don't know now, they will learn and they will achieve what they're saying they will. I think that's incredibly important and um, holds a lot of weight um, within your PhD application. Yeah, and I think that also speaks to the idea of, you know, having a lot of grit and determination because I've said time and time again, a PhD is not really a test of your intelligence. I think anybody who gets, um, you know, accepted onto a PhD program already has a level of intelligence. You're mm-hmm. all at the same level. But what separates people is your ability to engage, your, you know, your commitment to the journey, your ability to just buckle down, get yeah. into it. You know, it's not easy. By, mm-hmm. by a long shot, it's not easy. But I think what counts is when you are down, are you able to just continue going? And that speaks to, you know, the idea of the passion. We, when we spoke yeah. earlier on, you know, when your dad said um, you get paid to do what you, what you love. If you don't love yeah. it, I'm, I promise you a PhD will be really hard. You probably won't even get through it. You have to love what you're doing and you have to enjoy it. You have to have a passion about it. And yeah. the mentors, et cetera, all of these things that we're talking about, they go a long way. Get some work experience in the area that you want to work in. You know, we're not saying go be a researcher. You can't get that immediately, but intern in some of those spaces, you know, find out if that's your true passion. Um, you know, get people under your wing who perhaps talk to you about the journey. Um, people such as us, (laughs) you know, um, just find out as much as you can, um, about the journey. I think it goes a long, long way in terms of surviving the PhD journey. Yeah. 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 That grit part. Mm, The grit. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So, I mean, now that you're in your final year, which is an amazing achievement. (laughs) Thank you. I see the finish line. Oh, the final year, though. Oh, I don't want to scare you, but you know what? You'll be seeing the finish line and you will still have moments of, ah, me, I can't. I remember even a month <laughs> before submitting my, my final um, draft, I was just like, you know what? No. I'm done. No, I'm done. Just take this thing away. And I had friends who actually quit in the final year because it's just. Wow. I don't yeah. know. A PhD can really, really rinse you at another level. Yeah. It's, yeah. It puts you through the ringer in so many different ways. I don't know. But um, despite all of that, as you look back on your journey and everything, are there things that, you know, you were surprised by on the journey? Were your expectations of a PhD accurate or met, et cetera? Um, I think what I was most surprised by is how, like you said, to, to get to the level of a PhD or like you've been accepted for one, you are mm-hmm. like smart, you are capable but I think you you have to get used to correction, right? Like when you write your paper, when you put in, um, uh, I guess, an amendment or whatever, ethics approval, it's never, ever going to be, like you're never, ever going to get someone who says, perfect, this is great, thank you. <laughs> you're always going to get feedback that's like, this is great, but like change everything. Or, or I know I said this before, but change it back to what it was. Get used um, to the red marker. <laughs> yeah. Don't yeah, fight it. Yeah. <laughs> and sometimes, you know, I think if you've come from, especially if you've come from institutions like Arundel, where, you know, your mark of achieve like doing well means getting it right the first mm. time. You do have to understand that, that no, nothing will ever be perfect, but if you are going to be putting out knowledge as a expert in whatever you do, then correction is necessary and get used to it. 
Yeah. It's not it's not a telling of your capabilities or your intelligence, but it's necessary so that when you do put out this product, it's something that you can say it's been, you know, validated or it's been rigorously mm. addressed. Yeah. So for me, I think the biggest thing is I didn't realize how much the PhD would be character building. You know, it is a professional qualification, but I think it it does impact you very personally on multiple levels. Um, I, I also, the community you gain, um, throughout the journey when you, you know, you're writing papers with people, you're engaging on different projects with people, you speak on different platforms with people, um, the people that you meet who are as equally, um, passionate about the work and the research that you're doing, um, what you do with those relationships or engagements is really up to the amount of effort you are willing to put in, but those can be very uh, enriching and fulfilling and great support systems and people that you can end up working on working with you know for a long time into the future mm. um, and I guess um, understanding that I think it it can be it can consume a lot of your life but you need to also during the journey start to think about what's next yeah and I, I think sometimes it's difficult because it is such a long journey. So you're like, I'm just trying to finish. Like, I can't <laughs> think about what's next. But I do think that you have to be intentional about your next, your steps in the PhD in terms of thinking, what do you want to do next? So at the end of this PhD, yes, you're going to be an expert in menstrual health or whatever. But what else do you want to gain from this? Like, what skills do you want mm. to be quantitatively qualitatively do you want to be process evaluation like what is it that you want to um hone in on beyond the subject topic that you're doing yeah and what else um, do you want to do beyond the journey because i think yeah, that what next yeah. step is really important and a lot of my peers at least they missed that bit and i remember when i was doing my phd a lot of my friends would always ask why are you always going to conferences why are you always putting yourself forward for all these things and for me that was part of my what next because I was trying mm -hmm. to build my CV at the same time because I knew that at the end of this I still need to apply for a job exactly. I still need to you know there's exactly. reality there's life after PhD and exactly. you can't just get to the end of the journey and they say oh okay I'm here now I've got this you know beautiful certificate employ me the world doesn't quite work in that way because they're then <laughs> yeah. gonna say what have you done you were studying for all these years. What were you what doing else? alongside that? Yeah. Oh, I was just studying. Only, you know. So going to conferences, speaking, writing, being immersed in those spaces. That's where you actually meet the people who then, you know, will perhaps avail the next step. For me, it exactly. was meeting people who um, were able to perhaps support me. I think even some of my colleagues at my first, you know, full-time job um, were people I met on conferences, uh, at conferences, yeah. you know, who then took me under, my, under their wing, helped me at my current institution and i've managed to then you know perhaps fast track in some areas because of the stuff we managed to do from beforehand and yes. you know build that rapport and relationships you don't just get there and now start doing it everything no. like you said you know has to be intentional you can't foresee the future but build as you go yeah 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 because it, it can be really easy to just sort of say i'm focused on my research mm. and that's all you do and you just say no to opportunities and no to networking events but it's those things, those other things that you do um, that you've been exposed through to through your research or your PhD that's going to sort of, you know, show you what could be next. Yeah. I absolutely agree with that. And that's also the stuff that also informs your understanding and the contribution to, to knowledge that you bring to the table as you defend yeah. yourself in your viva. You will draw on a lot of those experiences because people will ask you, where have you seen that happen? Where have you tried that, et cetera? 
yes, you can speak to your research um, time in the field, but you can also yeah. speak to where you, when you presented it and the audience reacted in this way, that way. I spoke to Professor XYZ, who I met at XYZ, who affirmed this. That goes a long way, and people fail to sometimes realize that. So, yeah, I think that was an important nugget that you raised. Yeah. Um, as you were talking, um, I was just thinking about, you know, we're starting to just um, perhaps uh, wrap up as well. The reality of studying in Zimbabwe for a PhD that is based as well in the United Kingdom. Mm. So the distance learning aspect of it all. Um, do you have anything that you may want to share? Um, any challenges, any encounters that you perhaps experienced along the way? Yeah, I mean... I actually, I don't know if this, if I'm like a rare case, but I honestly felt like it was the the best of both worlds. Mm -hmm. Um, I predominantly am in Zimbabwe because that's where my research is based. Mm -hmm. Um, and this is where my, most of my family is. Um, so it's been for me beneficial in a lot of ways. And actually from a financial perspective, um, particularly with, um, the Biomedical Research and Training Institute in Zimbabwe, they have a um, partnership with the London School. So the way it works is it's a capacity building program. So we actually, if you are in a partnership, so I think there's BRTI in Zimbabwe and there's a few research institutions in Uganda and Tanzania that if you are doing your research based in the home country, but you're affiliated with London School, you pay local fees. Mm. So that was a huge burden lifted off me, um, not having to pay, you know, the exalt, like the really high international PhD fees. Um, but beyond that, having the immediate support of your family on the ground, being able to um, live at home and have that support system very close has been really, really great. And the biggest thing around me doing this PhD, like I said at the beginning, is that I wanted to immerse myself in communities. So not just writing abstractly or from what I'm reading online, but actually being able to visit the sites regularly has been an amazing opportunity. I guess some of the, the challenges um, and probably a more... Uh, pronounced because of COVID is not being able to be close to my supervisors, especially as we're sort of looking and analyzing the data. Mm. Um, so obviously now grounded in Zim where I had, you know, plans to be in London so I could focus on writing and analysis and be engaged more with my supervisory team, which is based in the UK. That's been difficult. Um, and also I think the other thing is when you're on the ground, things always come up. Um, I, I don't know other people's experiences with writing, but I just need to be like away. You need a, a writing retreat. <laughs> yeah, and just be by myself. Mm. But if you're in the office every day, there's always going to be something to do, mm. someone who needs your help with something, someone who needs uh, your informational guidance on something. So that sort of uh, busyness of being on the ground all the time can be challenging. Um, but honestly, I, I, I feel for me, it's been a really, really good arrangement because I do get to, to be at home and do the work. Um, and hopefully when the world opens up again, I'll be able to be in London and take some time away and focus on the writing and the analysis and have the support of my uh, supervisors like in the same building, mm -hmm. you know, or on the same floor, because that does make a difference as opposed to 
discussing things over email or um, over a Zoom call. Yeah, and I think that last leg of the PhD, you do become a bit of a hermit or a recluse in, in mm-hmm, a way. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people do. I'm looking that. forward to it. Yeah. Really it's necessary because you just really have to hone in and just now just focus, focus. So a writing sabbatical, I think a number of people end up going on those or writing retreats, etc. Yeah. Now and again, just plug up. But whilst you're still in Zim, I mean... If it's worth worth it, you know, try apply for three days here and there where you can just go to a library somewhere or even out of town and yeah, just yeah. plug yourself in it and be offline. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. I definitely, you know, if travel's not possible, I definitely plan on just going out of town mm. um, or even getting an Airbnb locally, Just but just like being offline yeah. and saying I'm taking a week away to focus on my writing. Mm, Absolutely. And I think that's really, really important. Yeah. So again, this takes us into the next step, which is also something you touched on early on um, about, you know, the what's next, you know, step. Yeah. So, um, I mean, without being too intrusive, do you have any, you know, plans around, you know, your future career options, um, aspirations, or even if it's not yours, um, you know, the the careers that are available in your particular space, if somebody was to perhaps follow in your um, shoes, what can they expect to do after a PhD? Yeah. So I think within the menstrual health space, there are many ways that you could take it. Um, I, You could go into academia and full-time research. That's definitely an avenue. There's so many things that are yet to be researched on around menstrual health, particularly amongst women in sub-Saharan Africa. So there's a lot of space to sort of look into pain, look into bleeding disorders, um, you know, look into... Um, practices across across uh, sub-Saharan Africa, there's a lot that can still be looked into. Um, and then there's the tech angle. Like there are a lot of um, apps that are coming up and developing and growing around uh, period management, tracking your period, fertility. Um, that's a huge space as well. Personally, I would I would like to lend my, my knowledge and my skills to tech. Um, but from this, from a sort of women in sub-Saharan Africa spec, mm. I think there's not enough around pain um, and fertility amongst women in sub-Saharan Africa. I, you know, I think sometimes I've even had experiences where I ask somebody, you know, on a scale of one to ten, how do you rate your pain? And it's like it's painful, mm. right? Like no one's really asked me, like ask them, like rate your pain like there's a scale for pain it's just painful it's not painful you just deal with it um so i would love to sort of go into that industry and then there's also product innovation so a lot of scope for how we can make period products better more sustainable environmentally friendly um so yeah i don't see myself going purely into academia i do sort of want to turn knowledge into innovation Mm. um from either a product perspective or a tech perspective. Um, But already sort of been incorporated into a few grants that are looking to continue research into bleeding disorders and also capacitating health workers and how to address the menstrual health needs of women in their communities. Um, You know, I, there's so many examples of women who've gone to a doctor and said, this is my problem, something is not right. And the doctor saying, this is completely normal. Um, and not, you know, because they don't care, but really they just don't have the knowledge or the skills to address some of these things. So, yeah, some research here and there, but I, I think I want to 
divert into into tech a little bit. Mm. Um, and then, yeah, I don't know. Beyond that, it, uh, yeah, I think that's it. Yeah, There's that's so much though. Like it, five, yeah, ten years. That's where mm. I'm looking at. So, um, a little bit of research but mainly uh, turning research into innovation. Mm. In your field, yeah. I think there's so much to be done. It's still, you know, uncharted territories in so many ways. Yeah. So it's going to be really exciting um, watching your career and the trajectory ahead of you. And whilst you're talking, I actually was just thinking of plugging your um, blog. She's got a really, yes. really, really interesting blog called The Bleed Read. And your Instagram page is amazing. I love it. Thank I love you. it. I love it. Especially when you do your polls and all of that. I think it's super informative. And that's what we need out there. So guys, um, when we post her episode, we will um, link all of that. Um, if you also have anything else that you want us to link, if it's about Chiedza or anything that you're doing, do let us know and we'll be able to attach that as well. So guys, do check that out. And um, as we wrap up, do you have any parting tips um, that you might want to share with the audience? Um... I mean, I, I guess I would just say that if you're truly passionate about something, do your research on how you can make it a career. Um, I think when I thought about what I wanted to do, I knew I wanted to work with women. I knew I wanted to work in health, but I never, ever thought I would find a PhD on menstrual health. And mm. here we are. Um, so definitely do your research if you're passionate about something and turn it into something that you can build a life on. Um and then I would say, talk about periods all the time, guys. <laughs> and talk about them with all your family members. <laughs> yes, okay. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> they they must... might be a little bit like, oh, but after a while, they're really going to open up and it just opens dialogue for so many other things. And it makes life so, so much easier. I mean, I'm just talking from experience because I think my dad opening up that dormant, it was almost like a whole pass to, okay, I don't have to be don't have to have my guard up all the time or yeah. if, this, if this happens or if you know i happen to spoil myself or whatever like nobody would be like you know it was just exactly yeah okay life happens or if that day i didn't want to wake up or i was just sick nobody was out here saying oh she's feeling lazy today she's not helping people just understood so the yeah. more conversations we have around these um topics the better and guys you're gonna have daughters one day some of you you know so <laughs> don't yeah, shy away daughters, from the subject partners, <laughs> you know all of that yeah you got sisters moms etc don't shy away from the subject it's not just for women it's for everybody yeah absolutely yeah it's been brilliant having you on the um podcast as well super enlightening and a super refreshing topic so so much to learn from i've thoroughly enjoyed this and i'm just really excited about your future and Thank final you. year and everything my goodness yeah <laughs> the phd has come and gone really fast right <laughs> yeah it, it has i i think i never knew that three years go by so quickly mm. um it's been it's gone by very very quickly i have up until eight years because it's distant learning and part-time but i was like no 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 let's get through this it's, let's wrap it up like, wow so you really oh my goodness that's that's an extra achievement i don't know if people actually get it that if you've got eight years and you've managed to cut it in half or less than yeah yeah that is some um, yeah but oh anyway we, we've always known arundel girls i'm always out here <laughs> plugging <laughs> Look at you achieving, you know, setting a pace and a standard for people. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm surrounded by just like power women at work. So it's just sort of like, okay, let's just keep matching the mm. energy in the in the room. And so, yeah, definitely like working with people that are equally motivated and passionate has been amazing as well. 
Fantastic. Thank you. Thank you so much, Mandy. Um, and guys, uh, do check out her blog, as I mentioned. Uh, we yes. will tag it and do check out her Instagram page and follow her as well. And yeah, thank you so much. Thank you so much. It's been really, really great speaking to you. And I really, really love and appreciate this podcast. Much needed. Fantastic. Thank you.